I'm going to begin reading in the eighth verse of 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. We're just going to read four verses today. Then I want to pray for us, and we're going to consider how this helps us to understand who we are as the church, as God's people. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and slavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pause here for a moment and pray. I want to encourage you to not make my, my praying a spectator sport. Uh, I suppose even if uh, that would be better, I suppose, than even checking out completely. But I want to ask you to unite your heart with mine, and let's share in this confidence and in this confession this morning that this word that God has given us has been given with intention, that it's been given personally, that it's been given with the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us to understand and to grow. We say together, not because I said it, but we say together from the teaching of Scripture that this is living and active. And so I would desire more than anything to not just go through the motions this morning. That's part of what I'm feeling as I pray here. So I just read this as a common thing we do. I read the Bible. I say, please, let's pray. What I'm feeling is God help this to not be just a way to pass the time. So I would ask you, why don't you unite your heart with mine? What if God would meet us? What if he would speak? What if he would give us some insight to give us a little bit closer to freedom, a little bit of a clearer conscience, a little bit more hope, a little bit more love? What if, what if, and maybe because God desires that, let's, let's pray. God, you are completely and totally other, beyond us in every way. You've given us some words, you've deigned to speak in our language, you've shown us some of the things to say about you, your majesty and your might, but none of it is going to properly capture you. You are truly glorious. More than that, God, we recognize this morning that you're holy. Everything that you are, everything you say, everything you've ever done is perfection. And so this morning, God, I pray that you would help us to have the right perspective to position ourselves because you, that God, the perfect God, the holy God, the mighty and majestic one, you call us your children. You teach us to pray by saying, our Father. So, Father, teach us and help us. We thank you for your words. We thank you for your spirit. And we pray this morning, Spirit of God, move in us. Lighten our burdens. Help us to see more and to have more and to be more like Jesus. God, we carry with us deep and complex and interwoven doubts and sins and maladies 
And you've seen all of these things, and you love us still. You know all of these things, and you welcome us to the table. So God, I ask not only for me, but for us as a gathering, as your people, that you would help us to learn to have eyes that see and ears that can hear. We don't want to be deaf here this morning, God. Awaken us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul is keen on correcting a potential misunderstanding here. That's what he starts with in verse 8. It's an interesting phrase, a way to start a verse of the Bible. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We're going to come back to why he has to say this in a moment, but I want to stop for a second and highlight and think about that phrase, if one uses it lawfully. If I had to put a title on this particular section of 1 Timothy, as we're going to think about it this morning, I want to think about it this way. This is what Paul is saying, that we need to be introduced to and to receive a lawful law. He's, he's defending the lawfulness of the law. And I know that sounds odd, but what he's saying is, is that the law that God has given, which is good, is a mighty and wonderful tool that can be used improperly. And things that are useful are only useful if one knows how to use them. Am I being profound enough here this morning? Usefulness has as its base understanding that the person using it is using it for its particular purpose. What is the purpose of, these, of this thing? And if you get that mixed up, it can cause great harm. Short of great harm, if you have a tool that is useful, but you don't know how to use it, at the very least, you're going to forfeit some benefit that was intended by the creator of the tool. I watched a mind-blowing video a couple of years ago about how to use a can opener. And I don't know how to tell you this, but you've been using it wrong your whole life. Did you know that a can opener is intended not to go on the side of the thing to create a massive, sharp, I'm going to cut my fingers off scenario, but to lay flat upon the top of a can, and it comes off clean and easy. And so that you can use it, there's a, soup camp, a Campbell's soup can under your chairs all right now, just as a demonstration. But don't you kind of have an urge to say, what? What do you mean? I want to try that right now. I'm going to the store. The idea there, though, is that I watched this video and I thought to myself, wow, a can opener is one of the most useful things that I'd ever imagined. It's in every single kitchen ever, but it's still not as useful as the maker of the tool intended it to be. What I felt in all those years was that I had forfeited some benefit that was designed for me. There I was, giving it up. I also had a friend who told me of an instance where his child understandably didn't understand the usefulness of a particular product, and he came home on one Father's Day to find his child washing his car for him, saying, Daddy, I love you, and I wanted to wash your car. And what he found in the pail with the soapy water was not a clean towel or one of those wonderful, really soft, felty kind of car wash, things you'd get at Home Depot, but instead, a whole bunch of steel wool. But when you're seven, and you want to surprise your dad, and you need to find a tool to get the job done, 
you go and you find a tool. I've seen his mom using this to clean pans. Now what happens there is that something that is intended and in its proper way has wonderful use. If the person doesn't know how to use it, it can be at the very least a forfeit of some benefit, but at the worst it can be terribly, terribly harmful. And the situation in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is that Paul realizes and recognizes that there have been some who have been using the law in the wrong way. That's what the entirety of verses 3 through 7 is. There are some who swerve into speculation and vain discussion. They are committed, devoted to different doctrines and myths and endless genealogies. And he's seen the wreckage that comes behind someone who has a tool in their hand but wields it terribly. And that's his concern. But I want you to walk with me for just a moment and to think logically down the steps. You've just told Timothy, and Timothy has been instructing the church about the ways that people who use the law can cause harm. In other words, sometimes religious, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes religious people cause great harm. And people are really actually harmed. You listen to someone's story and the experience they had in a church growing up or with a particular person, and what they experienced was at the very least a ham-fisted, hopefully good intention, but just kind of a ham-fisted, like somebody using a can opener wrong. Like, I think we got to the point, but there was a lot of sharp edges. Or worse than that, there are people who tell their stories, and there was someone who had a a tool that wielded it dangerously and left wreckage behind. And Paul says, well, Ephesus is going to be no different. We're seeing it happen all over the place. It's harder to drink water when I have to have a handheld mic. Just going to put that down for the record books. Harder. So here's the logical next step, and this is what Paul wants to head off. He's going to jump ahead. Paul's, oh, he's a wonderful instructor. He's a good teacher. A good teacher not only has a wonderful grasp of the concept that they're trying to teach, but they work hard to, to put it into a context that the person understands, and they also get ahead of the thinking of the learner. So Paul's getting ahead of the thinking of the learner. He's going to cut him off at the pass because here's potentially what Timothy could hear or maybe what the church could hear. Oh, man, I've seen people use this tool wrong. Therefore, let's cast off the tool completely. This thing is terrible. This thing is useless. And if we want to be truly spiritual people who really connect with God, we will understand that any time law and doctrine comes into play, it needs to be rejected. Because let me tell you, one time when I was 13, I went to a camp and someone talked about doctrine and the law and it ended badly. And here's what Paul knows, that sometimes the very real tension between harm and hurt in a particular tool and its usefulness, sometimes that very real tension is not held properly in wisdom, but instead is completely cast off. In a theological terms, there were groups of people who had cast off the restraints of the law, had cast off all that God taught, didn't want to talk about doctrine at all. In this time and in this day and age, they would have been called the antinomians, Nomos is the word for law in the Bible. 
and they were, you can figure this out, you don't have to be a Latin scholar, right, they were anti-law. I remember about 10 or 15 years ago, I think this particular group of Christians has more or less faded away. It was a fad of sorts. But it was very, very popular amongst Christians my age and those who were starting churches and getting involved in places to be as emphatic as one could be that any statement of doctrine had the potential to not only harm, but to create a situation where we were no longer Christians. I remember going to Christian websites that said things like this. Under statement of faith, it said, Jesus, we don't talk about doctrine because it divides and is unhealthy. Things like that. I don't know if you have had experiences or felt that before. That instinct is as old as Christianity is old. So Paul cuts it off at the past and says this, I want to reinforce the problem, and wherever there has been a problem, is not with the law, it's not with God, it's not with His teaching, it's with us. It is with us. It's why, after describing all of the carnage and the wreckage in verses 3 through 7 and verse 8, he says, now we know, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And what he wants to press home then is to remind Timothy some of the usefulness, the wonder, the goodness, and the gift of the law. Now, traditionally, down through the ages, these uses of the law have been written out in different scenarios, and sometimes you'll see two reasons, or sometimes you'll see three I'm going to give you a couple of them and outline traditionally in the Protestant tradition, this is the way that the law has been considered to be good. Now, we know that the law is good, and what I want to do this morning through these verses is to describe some of the way that the law is good. So, here's some, here's some ideas for us. The first thing, we can say this word. I'm going to give you three words here, and we're going to talk about each. The first one, the law restrains. This is the way that we've talked about it. The law restrains. One of the things that the law does, its goodness, is that it gives us parameters to live in. Second, the law convicts. So, the law actually works by God's Spirit to open our hearts and to lay us bare bare in a particular way that we would not be willing to otherwise. So, the law convicts. It not only restrains, but it corrects in conviction. And then finally, the law leads. It is a leader. teaches and leads us a proper, on a proper path. So, we got those in order. Big heading, the lawful law. Paul wants to get ahead of the thinking of the learner. And then three ways we're going to be convinced that the law is good. What God gave us in His Word and His instruction is good, and it's going to be for these reasons. It restrains and it convicts and it leads. The use of God's Word, statements of faith and doctrine, ought to be received and thought through and to be realized that these things are for our health. And we only realize and are concerned that they're for our health if we've understood the way that they should be used. So far, there were some people in Ephesus who had been using it poorly because they didn't understand what it was for. One comment on what was going wrong, and these are the things we want to avoid by learning what the law is. One comment on what was going wrong, I I thought this was a good understanding of the devotion to endless myths and genealogies and different doctrines. It says this, there were some Ephesian elders for whom the church had become their only mission field. Christians, other Christians had become their unreached people group. 
And when this happens, something is wrong. That is a very interesting statement. In other words, he says there were some elders who were in the faith, in the church, but when they looked around, their main motivation and passion was to track down some crazy, mysterious genealogy with other Christians. There was a spirit in them that looked around and said, yes, I know you're a Christian, but wouldn't we all be happier and better if we just lined up with this? I know what you're thinking, and I want to get ahead of it a little bit. I want to try to imitate Paul. You might be the kind of person right now who's very black and white, and you say, like, well, we should line up with things. What do you mean, Lance? Are you trying to say we shouldn't line up with things? I'm out of here. I can't believe the time I've wasted in this church. He just said we shouldn't line up with things. No, we should line up with things. We should line up with the correct things. But maybe you could admit with me that I've been a part of, and I've maybe been in the midst of, and the instigator of, and maybe you've been the instigator of, or we've been a part of the instinct to ask people to line up or to be devoted to the wrong things. There are many of us who spend a lot of time and energy in prayer and consternation amidst other Christians for their choices in schooling and their choices in politics and their choices in eating and their choices in, I mean, how many more things can we name? Now, those things are not inconsequential. But if you find yourself devoting nearly all of your life to the unreached people group of those people who don't understand X, Y, Z about schooling, then something has gone out of whack. Especially if you have been called to steward the deposit of the gospel and you are an elder over a church. That's what Paul's trying to say. Don't do that, but instead use the law lawfully. And this is how it ought to be used. When he says the law is good here, I told you that it restrains. Here's a sense in which the law is good. Paul is trying to be clear in what he said in other places, very, very clear. Here's Paul in Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, 12, he says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So we need to avoid the pendulum swing that might say something like, well, I've seen it, you've been used poorly, so therefore it's all bad. No, it is good. And one of the main ways that it's good is that it restrains. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase that a lock keeps good people honest. You heard this phrase? You get it? The idea being here that there is something restraining about a law that simply by knowing the rules and understanding the parameters, it frees up our conscience to live in a particular way so that we can have joy. Even though all of us have a sinful instinct in us to cast off rules and restraint, God, for our good, knows that He designed us to have rules and restraint, and when used properly, rules and restraint give maximum freedom to human beings. So, you walk into a room and you see a whole bunch of bins on the wall and 17 of them have locks and three of them do not. You have some freedom and some instruction to know what to do. Now, the phrase, of course, that a lock keeps good people honest has the idea here that a lock will never fully and totally keep dishonest people from being dishonest. 
but something about parameters and statements, I think especially in parenting, having some sort of rule for your family, here's how we do things, is not, a, not an unlawful or a terrible restraint on your children. It is giving them freedom. It's letting them know this is what is desired of me. I know where to be and how to be. So the law restrains. Luther once called this idea of the law the civic use of the law. It's the kind of thing that is a common grace to all of humanity to set down the parameters of life. Luther was also one of the first to lay down, later in his catechism, he first described two uses of the law, and then later by the time it became catechized and sort of the rule of the church, there were three perspectives or uses of the law. If I go back to the opening to say, well, if we're going to use this, and it's what Paul said, we're supposed to use the law usefully or lawfully, Luther basically said that this tool that God has given us is a wonderfully useful thing with three purposes. One law, but three purposes, like a spork with a serrated handle. Get the idea? It's one tool, super useful. One tool, super useful. So that first one, the restraining fact, and it's a way to introduce Luther, he called it the civic use of the law, restrains people, and this is good. Second, though, we said that the law convicts. This is the teaching or pedagogical idea of the law. What it does is it comes alongside crooked people and shows them a straight path, and by its use, makes their conscience come alive. It convicts people concerning sin and righteousness and shows them the way that God is and how we have fallen short. Once again, Luther commenting on misuse of the law, he says, when used in this way, the law is a mighty hammer to crush the self-righteousness of human being. It shows them their sin so that by the recognition of sin, they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down. What an interesting way to describe. Humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace and for the blessed Christ. This idea of the law being a mighty hammer shows both unrighteous and self-righteous people what God is like. And I believe that that is what is being described in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. He goes through and lists down all of the ways that we do not line up. These are the things that we ought to be convicted about. I would say that this use is what Paul has in mind, convicting and pointing out sinners when he says, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane. He is trying to show that one of the main uses of the law is to convict concerning sin and that when done rightly, we will have to confess that we have not met the standard. The law is used to convict now, there's a couple of things that I want to explain about the use of the law in the Bible, and especially the way that verses 9 and 10 show up here. The first thing to remember is that Jesus has a few things to say about the law. Jesus says that the summary of the law, the totality of the law, hangs on two principles, two things. First, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, he says. You ought to love your neighbor as yourself. On these 
hang the whole law and the prophets. This is what Jesus says. That when we think about the law, we should be thinking about it in these terms. Love God and love neighbor. And one of the things that we find when we take that principle and lay it over something even like the Ten Commandments, which I think is in view here, the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are more or less a, long, a longer way to say this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's concerned with the worship of God and the use of our words concerning God, how we give to God and how we rest in God. The first four commandments of the Ten Commandments show us what it looks like to properly love God, and perhaps more than that, it shows us what happens or how wrong we are in the fall, what happens in the fall that we reject these things. Then the next six, we're often called the second table of the Ten Commandments, five through ten, show us how to love neighbor as self. I mean, I could say it as simply as this. Here's what the Ten Commandments say. Don't kill your neighbor because you wouldn't want them to kill you. Love them like you would love yourself. Don't take your neighbor's stuff because you wouldn't want your neighbor to take your stuff. Love them as yourself. Don't commit adultery, don't envy, don't lie about or gossip about or slander your neighbor. This is not a way to love them as yourself. And it's in this list that we begin to feel the conviction of sin and realize that we have not measured up. And so it's not a perfect overlay. But verse 9 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says it's for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly, the sinners, the unholy and profane. The idea there, it is that those who have rejected completely the first four laws, they have not loved God the way that they ought. If they loved God, they would have obeyed Him. If they loved God, they would have received His law. If they loved God, they would have walked in holiness and not profaned His name. And then he goes on and he has a, a second list. And these are, are very drastic ways to describe the way that people disobey the law of God, the conviction that should come in the law. These are drastic ways to describe many of the Ten Commandments. Not just honor your father and mother, but the law shows how dishonoring people can be to their father and mothers by striking them. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, again, I mean, fathers and mothers are in view, so I'll think about parenting. Remember, if you can think about some of the first moments, remember Sarah and I in the first moments we realized we had to figure out how to consider and discipline our children because children need to know the parameters and they don't really realize. And like, I remember getting hit by my child and just thinking, okay, this is new territory. What, what do I do? Because if they're 15 and this continues, we're in trouble. But there's nothing cute, right, about, about a kid who lashes out like that. They need to be instructed. They need to be shown, no, no, this is not the way to go. Now, here Paul shows what it would be like in full bloom for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, literally man-stealers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else 
is contrary to sound doctrine. I think what Paul is defending here and what we must defend is that to say that certain sinful things are sinful according to the law of God is a good purpose of the law. We can never gloss these things over. And I would say this, that this second idea of the use of the law, the first to restrain, to give good parameters, I'd say that's the kind of thing that God did in the Garden of Eden, and everything was joyful and wonderful, and they walked in the cool of day, right? But the second idea of the conviction that comes when sin enters into the world, and specifically the conviction that comes when God says, do this and we don't measure up, this kind of bad news, this is the bad news use of the law. We need to be reminded of the bad news. One of the purposes when people come in or we all gather together on a Sunday like this is that as consistently as we can, we want to remind people just how serious sin is. Because you know one of the most dangerous things for your soul and for my soul is if we forget that sin is dangerous. If we excuse ourselves If we get to the point where we say, yes, of course sin is dangerous, I see how it affects everyone else. But in order for us to get to good news, which will be one of the purposes of the law in a minute here, we can't skip over this purpose of the law to say out loud, these things are wrong. Don't slander and don't gossip and don't have envy and don't be sexually immoral. And stop envying and harboring bitterness, and stop dishonoring your parents, and stop disregarding God and coming on a Sunday but then living your life functionally as an atheist, that your life matters and the things that you do, especially in the light of a perfectly holy God, that these things matter. So Paul says, I know this can go wrong, and we've seen it go wrong, but it's not the law's fault. The law needs to be described, and the law needs to be pressed, and the law needs to be received in fullness. We get nowhere with God by lessening His law. I think that's what Paul's trying to say. So sometimes, when we go through the Bible, the temptation to undersell something or to sweep something under the rug is not a way to love one another. It's a way to put one another in danger, which is why Paul is so clear and just describes, well, here's a list of sins. What do you think of that? Bad news has to precede good news. It's just the way that it is. Good news needs to come on the heels of something that you were longing for, something that you were missing A heart and a soul that has not been properly convicted and convinced of their position before God will not receive the grace of God in forgiveness. Jesus said, I came to heal the sick. That's the only kind of people I'm here for. So the law comes in and says, let me show you all the ways you're sick. That's why people hate going to the doctor. I heard someone say just the other day, I never want to go to the doctor because I don't want to know what's wrong with me. What an interesting phrase. I don't want to know what's wrong with me. There's something about that that is true. We all put that off as long as we 
can, but then the law comes in and says, well, well, let's just talk about it a little bit. Here's the list. Finally, there is a use of the law, the most glorious use, I would say the, the fulfilled use of the law, the law in all of its fullness, the most useful, and Paul hits it at the end. He says the law also is everything else that's contrary to sound doctrine. That word sound literally means health, like whole foods kind of health. Although I've read now for the people who are, who are really serious, whole foods is kind of a sellout. You know, they're not as healthy before. Anyway, it means health. Some people have speculated that Luke, who accompanied Paul in many of his his journeys toward the end of his life may have been the one writing. Luke was a physical doctor, likely, and he uses a word here that only he uses in the Gospels for health, anything that accords with healthy doctrine. That's what we should call out. But those things, the bad news, he says, that they should be in accordance with the gospel, the good news of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The third use of the law is that it leads us. I want to read Galatians chapter 3 because, again, I think that Paul uses this idea, one use of the law, very, very well, and we should not only consider it, but I think that it's the most helpful description of what the law is supposed to do for us. Galatians chapter 3 Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was our teacher. The law was our tutor. The law was leading us along so that we could find Christ. Remember the quote by Luther. He says the law first comes in as a hammer to frighten and to wear down people who would trust in themselves to humble them so that they would long for grace and for the blessed Christ. In that sense, this use of the law, the law used properly, should leave us not hopeless and helpless, but leave us longing for forgiveness and for Christ. In fact, you'll know that it's been the Spirit of God moving in your heart and in your soul if your desire, after having a list of all the ways that you've fallen short, if your desire is to say, I long for forgiveness and for life and for joy. If something inside of you says, wretched person that I am, wretched man that I am, how can I be saved? How can this be fixed? And it's in that moment that Christ can enter in. The law carries us along to reveal our need and to place everyone under the same curse so that we might long for and find justification in Jesus. Paul has told us that the law properly understood finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus who is our hope and rescues us from the law. He says here that ultimately a human being's hope is to realize the good news of the hope of the glory of God. Sin is ultimately such an offense because it falls short of the glory of God. God, who is endlessly perfect and wonderfully holy, has placed His image on you and me 
And every single time we go out and bearing His image, we fall short of the glory, the goodness, the weightiness that He is. This is a travesty. Every single time that the image bearers of God fall short of His image, it's a travesty. And what we've been given in Jesus Christ is a welcome. This is the gospel. This is the good news that you can be restored to a place where you can glorify the God who created you, who sustains you, and who is your ultimate hope. The law teaches us to reach out to Jesus who perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. The law, in all of its curses for sin, teaches us to look out to Jesus who died and bore the punishment of the law for sin. And then ultimately, the law, showing our sinfulness, teaches us to reach out to Jesus who has been remade, who overcome the, who overcame the grave and then welcomes us into His endless life. You and I can be restored to a position of glorifying God, the main reason that we were created. You will never be satisfied in your soul until you have been reborn and remade with the hope that you can glorify God forever. And so, if all we ever do is use the law to restrain And if all we ever do is use the law to convict, we have fallen short. Because the law and all of its restraints, its goodness, and the law and all of its conviction, the bad news that comes with it, all of it pointing finally to this use of the law, which is to carry us along to Jesus. So I have, I believe, a stewardship this morning. I think this is what Paul would say. You have a stewardship this morning. Show people the way that the law intends them to live. Then show them the way that they don't live up to the law. And then finally, remind them that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the law and that they can walk and live in Him. None of us have hope apart from this reality. I do not want us to be a kind of place that subtly jettisons all restrictions and restraints as though living however we want is God's best design for us. Instead, let's embrace the goodness of the law and learn to use it lawfully. When we do, it'll point us to Jesus. Let's pray. God, I'm asking that we would avoid some of the mistakes, the problems that the church in Ephesus had, that those elders seem to be encountering. I pray, God, that my words and way more than that, that your word would convince us of our need for Jesus. We thank you for your law, God. We confess this morning that your law is good. It is, it is our hearts and our minds and our actions that are the problem, not you and your law. I pray, God, that you would convince us of the sinfulness of sin 
And at the same time, Spirit of God, would you help us and teach us to lift our eyes and convince us of the great depth of mercy and forgiveness that are ours in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.